Chapter 11 of Heroines of Service. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chad Jackson. Heroines of Service by Mary Rosetta Parkman. Chapter 11 The Heart of Hull House. Jane Addams. The Russian peasants have a proverb that says labor is the house that love lives in, by which they mean that no two people or group of people can come into affectionate relation with each other unless they carry on a mutual task. The Heart of Hull House Do you remember what the poet says of Peter Bell? At noon, when by the forest edge he lay beneath the branches high, the soft blue sky did never melt, into his heart he never felt, the watchery of the soft blue sky. In the same way, when he saw the primrose by the river's brim, it was not to him a lovely bit of the miracle of upspringing life from the unthinking clod. It was just a common little yellow flower, which one might idly pick and cast aside, but to which one never gave a thought. He saw the sky and woods and fields and human faces with the outward eye, but not with the eye of the heart or the spirit. He had eyes for nothing but the shell and show of things. This is the story of a girl who early learned to see with the inward eye. She felt the witchery of the soft blue sky, and all the wonder of the changing earth, and something of the life about her melted into her heart and became part of herself. So it was that she came to have a belonging feeling for all that she saw. Fields, pine woods, mill stream, birds, trees, and people. Perhaps little Jane Addams loved trees and people best of all. Trees were so big and true, with roots ever seeking a firmer hold on the good brown earth, and branches growing up and ever up, year by year, turning sunbeams into strength. And people she loved, because they had in them something of all kinds of life. There was one special tree that had the friendliest nooks where she could nestle and dream and plan plays as long as the summer afternoon. Perhaps one reason that Jane loved this tree was that it reminded her of her tall, splendid father. You are so big and beautiful, and yet you always have a place for a little girl, even one who can never be straight and strong, Jane whispered, as she put her arms about her tree friend. And when she crept into the shelter of her father's arms, she forgot her poor back that made her carry her head weakly on one side when she longed to fling it back and look the world in the face squarely, exultingly, as her father's daughter should. There is no one so fine or so noble as my father, Jane would say to herself, as she saw him standing before his Bible class on Sundays. Then her cheek paled, and her big eyes grew wistful. It would be too bad if people discovered that this frail child belonged to him. They would be surprised and pity him, and one must never pity father. So it came about that, though it was her dearest joy to walk by his side, clinging to his hand, she stepped over to her uncle, saying timidly, May I walk with you, Uncle James? This happened again and again, to the mild astonishment of the good uncle. At last a day came that made everything different. Jane, who had gone to town unexpectedly, chanced to meet her father coming out of a bank on the main street. Smiling gaily and raising his shining silk hat, he bowed low, as if he were greeting a princess, and as the shy child smiled back, she knew that she had been a very foolish little girl indeed. Why, of course, 
Her father made everything that belonged to him all right just because it did belong. He had strength and power enough for them both. As she walked by his side after that, it seemed as if the big grasp of the hand that held hers enfolded all the little tremblings of her days. "'What are these funny red and purple specks?' Jane asked once, as she looked with loving admiration at the hand which she clung. "'Those marks show that I have dressed millstones in my time, just as this flat right thumb tells anyone who happens to notice that I began life as a miller,' said her father." After that, Jane spent much time at the mill industriously rubbing the ground wheat between thumb and forefinger, and when the millstones were being dressed, she eagerly held out her little hands in the hope that the bits of flying flint would mark her as they had her father. These marks, she dimly felt, were an outward sign of her father's true greatness. He was a leading citizen of their Illinois community by right of character and hard-won success. Everybody admired and honored him. Did not President Lincoln even, who was, her father said, the greatest man in the world, write to him as a comrade and brother, calling him my dear double-deed Adams? Years afterward, when Jane Adams spoke of her childhood, she said that all her early experiences were directly connected with her father, and that two incidents stood out with the distinctiveness of vivid pictures. She stood one Sunday morning in proud possession of a beautiful new cloak, waiting for her father's approval. He looked at her a moment quietly, and then patted her on the shoulder. "'Thy cloak is very pretty, Jane,' said the Quaker father gravely. "'So much prettier, indeed, than that of the other little girls, that I think thee had better wear thy old one.' Then he added, as he looked into her puzzled, disappointed eyes, "'We can never, perhaps, make such things as clothes quite fair and right in this hill and valley world. But it is wrong and stupid to let the differences crop out in things that mean so much more.' In school and church, at least, people should be able to feel that they belong to one family. Another day, she had gone with her father on an errand into the poorest quarter of the town. It had always before seemed to her country eyes that the city was a dazzling place of toy and candy shops, smooth streets, and contented houses with sleek lawns. Now she caught a glimpse of quite another city, with ugly, dingy houses huddled close together and thin, dirty children standing miserably about without place or spirit to play. It is dreadful the way all the comfortable, happy people stay off to themselves, said Jane. When I grow up, I shall, of course, have a big house, but it is not going to be set apart with all the other big homes. It is going to be right down among the poor, horrid little houses like these. Always after that, when Jane roamed over her prairie playground, or sat dreaming under the Norway pines which had grown from the seeds that her father had scattered in his early pioneer days, she seemed to hear something of the still, sad music of humanity in the voice of the wind in the treetops, and in the harmony of her life of varied interests. For she saw with the inward eye of her heart, and felt the throb of all life in each vital experience that was hers. It would be impossible to live apart in pleasant places, enjoying beauty which others might not share. She must live in the midst of the crowded ways, and bring to the poor, stifled little houses an ideal of healthier living. She would study medicine, and go as a doctor to the forlorn, dirty children, but first there would be many things to learn. It was her dream to go to Smith College, but her father believed that a small college near her home better fitted one for the life to which she belonged. "'My daughter is also a daughter of Illinois,' he said, and Rockford College is her proper place. 
Afterward, she may go east and to Europe in order to gain a knowledge of what the world beyond us can give, and so get a fuller appreciation of what life at home is and may be. Jane Addams went, therefore, to the Illinois College, the Mount Holyoke of the West, a college famed for its earnest missionary spirit. The serious temper of her class was reflected in their motto, which was the Anglo-Saxon word for lady, holaftig, bread-neater, translated as bread-giver, and the poppy was selected for the class flower, because poppies grow among the wheat as if nature knew that wherever there was hunger that needed food, there would be pain that needed relief. The study in which she took the keenest interest was history, the human tale of this wide world, but even at the time of her greatest enthusiasm, she realized that while knowledge comes from the records of the past, wisdom comes from a right understanding of the actual life of the present. After receiving from her alma mater the degree of Bachelor of Arts, she entered the Women's Medical College in Philadelphia to prepare for real work in a real world. But the old spinal trouble soon brought that chapter to a close. After some months in Dr. Weir Mitchell's hospital, and a longer time of invalidism, she agreed to follow her doctor's pleasant prescription of two years in Europe. When I returned, I decided to give up my medical course, said Jane Adams, partly because I had no real aptitude for scientific work, and partly because I discovered that there were other genuine reasons for living among the poor than that of practicing medicine upon them. While in London, Miss Adams saw much of the life of the great city from the top of an omnibus. Once she was taken with a number of tourists to see the spectacle of the Saturday night auction of fruits and vegetables to the poor of the east side, and the lurid picture blotted out all the picturesque impressions, full of pleasant human interest and historic association, that she had been eagerly enjoying during this first visit to London town. Always afterwards, when she closed her eyes, she could see the scene. It seemed as if it would never leave her. In the flare of the gaslight, which made weird and spectral the motley, jostling crowd, and touched the black shadows it created into a grotesque semblance of life, she saw wrinkled women, desperate-looking men, and pale children vying with each other to secure with their farthings and ha'pennies the vegetables held up by a hoarse, red-faced auctioneer. One haggard youth sat on the curb, hungrily devouring the cabbage that he had succeeded in bidding in. Her sensation-loving companions on the bus stared with mingled pity and disgust, but the girl who saw what she looked on with the inward eye of the heart turned away her face. The poverty that she had before seen had not prepared her for wretchedness like this. For the following weeks, she said, I went about London furtively, afraid to look down narrow streets and alleys, lest they disclose this hideous human need and suffering. In time, nothing of the great city seemed real, save the misery of its east end. The first impression of London's poverty was, of course, not only lurid, but quite unfair. She knew nothing of the earnest workers who were devoting their lives to the problem of giving the right kind of help to those who, through weakness, ignorance, or misfortune, were not able to help themselves. When, five years later, she visited Toynbee Hall, she saw effective work of the kind she had dimly dreamed of ever since. As a little girl, she had wanted to build a beautiful big house among the ugly little ones in the city. Here in the heart of the Whitechapel district, the most evil and unhappy section of London's East End, a group of optimistic, large-hearted young men, who believed that advantages meant responsibilities, had come to live and work. 
while trying to share what good birth, breeding, and education had given them with those who had been shut away from every chance for wholesome living. They believed that they, in turn, might learn from their humble neighbors much that universities and books cannot teach. I have spent too much time in vague preparation, for I knew not what, said Jane Adams. At last I see a way to begin to live in a really real world, and to learn to do by doing. And so Hull House was born. In the heart of the industrial section of Chicago, where workers of 36 different nations live closely herded together, Miss Adams found surviving a solidly built house with large halls, open fireplaces, and friendly piazzas. This she secured, repaired, and adapted to the needs of her work, naming it Hull House from its original owner, one of Chicago's early citizens. But we must not forget that the house is only the outward sign, said Miss Adams. The real thing is the work. Labor is the house that love lives in, and as we work together, we shall come to understand each other and learn from each other. What are you going to put in your house for your interesting experiment, Miss Adams was asked. Just what I should want in my home anywhere, even in your perfectly correct neighborhood, she replied with a smile. You can imagine the beautiful, restful place it was, with everything in keeping with the fine old house. On every side were pictures and other interesting things that she had gathered in her travels. Of course, Miss Adams was not alone in her work. Her friend, Ellen Gates Starr, was with her from the beginning. Miss Julia Lathrop, who is now the head of the Children's Bureau in Washington, was another fellow worker. Soon many volunteers came eagerly forward, some to teach the kindergarten, others to take charge of classes and clubs of various kinds. They began teaching different kinds of handwork, which then had no place in the public schools. One little chap, who was brought into the juvenile court the other day for breaking a window, confessed to the judge that he had thrown the stone a purpose to get pinched, so they would send him to a school where they learn a fellow to make things, Miss Adams was told. Classes in woodwork, basketry, sewing, weaving, and other handicrafts were eagerly patronized. There were also evening clubs where boys and girls who had early left school to work in factories could learn to make things of practical value or listen to reading and the spirited telling of the great world stories. One day, Miss Adams met a small newsboy as he hastily left the house, vainly trying to keep back signs of grief. There is no use of coming here any more, he said gruffly. Prince Roland is dead. The evening classes were also social clubs, where the children who seemed to be growing dull and unfeeling, like the turning wheels among which they spent their days, could relax their souls and bodies in free, happy companionship and get a taste of natural living. Young people need pleasure as truly as they need food and air, said Miss Adams. When I see the throngs of factory girls on our streets in the evening, it seems to me that the pitiless city sees in them just two possibilities. First, the chance to use their tender labor power by day, and then the chance to take from them their little earnings at night by appealing to their need of pleasure. One of the new buildings that was early added to the original Hull House was a gymnasium, which provided opportunities for swimming, basketball, and dancing. We have swell times in our Hull House club, boasted black-eyed Angelina. Our floor in the gym puts it all over the old dance halls for a jolly good hop. No saloon next door with all that crowd, good classy music, and the right sort of girls and fellows. Then sometimes our club has a real party in the coffee house. That's what I call a fine, cozy time, 
makes a girl glad she's living. Whole House also puts within the reach of many the things which their active minds crave and opens the way to a new life and success in the world. Don't you remember me? A rising young newspaper man once said to Miss Adams, I used to belong to a Whole House club. Tell me what Whole House did for you that really helped, she took occasion to ask. It was the first house I had ever been in, he replied promptly, where books and magazines just lay around as if there were plenty of them in the world. Don't you remember how much I used to read at that little round table in the back of the library? Some good people who visit the settlement in a patronizing mood are surprised to discover that many of these working girls have a taste for what is fine. Miss Adams likes to tell them about the intelligent group who followed the reading of George Eliot's Romola with unflagging interest. The club was held in our dining room, she said, to one incredulous visitor, and two of the girls came early regularly to help wash the dishes and arrange the photographs of Florence on the table. Do you know, she added, looking her prosperous guest quietly in the eyes, that the young woman of whom you were inquiring about these people is one of our neighborhood girls? Those who live in these dingy streets, because they are poor and must live near their work, are not a different order of beings. Don't forget what Lincoln said. God must love the common people. He made so many of them. You have only to live at Whole House a while to learn how true it is that God loves them. Nothing has ever meant more real inspiration to me, said a student of sociology from the university who had spent a year in the settlement, than the way the poor help each other. A woman who supports three children by scrubbing will share her breakfast with the people in the next tenement because she has heard that they are hard up. A man who has been out of work has a month's rent paid by a young chap in the stockyards who boarded with him last year. A Swedish girl works in the laundry for her German neighbor to let her stay home with her sick baby, and so it goes. Our people have, too, many other hardships besides the frequent lack of food and fuel, said Miss Adams. There are other hungers. Do you know what it means for the Italian peasant, used to an outdoor life in a sunny, easy-going land, to adapt himself to the ways of America? It is a very dark, shut-in Chicago that many of them know. At one of the receptions here, an Italian woman, who was delighted with our red roses, was also surprised that they could be brought so fresh all the way from Italy. She would not believe that the roses grew in Chicago, because she had lived here six years and had never seen any. One always saw roses in Italy. Think of it. She had lived six years within ten blocks of florist shops, but had never seen one. Yes, said Miss Starr, they lose the beauties and joys of their old homes before they learn what the new can give. When we had our first art exhibition, an Italian said that he didn't know that Americans cared for anything but dollars, and that looking at pictures was something people did only in Italy. A Greek was overjoyed at seeing a photograph of the Acropolis at Hull House. He said that before he came to America, he had prepared a book of pictures and color of Athens, because he thought that people in the new country would like to see them. At his stand near a big railroad station, he had tried to talk to some of those who stopped to buy about the glory that was Greece, but he had concluded that Americans cared for nothing but fruit and the correct change. At Hull House, the Greeks, Italians, Poles, and Germans not only find pictures which quicken early memories and affectations, but they can give plays of their own country and people. The Ajax and Electra of Sophocles have been presented by Greeks, who felt that they were showing ignorant Americans the majesty of the classic drama. 
thanksgiving christmas and other holidays are celebrated by plays and pageants nor are the great days of other lands forgotten garibaldi and mazzini who fought for liberty in italy are honored with washington and lincoln old and young alike take part in the dramatic events a blind patriarch who appeared in longfellow's golden legend which was presented one christmas spoke to miss adams of his great joy in the work kind heart he said that was his name for her kind heart it seems to me that i have been waiting all my life to hear some of these things said i am glad we had so many performances for i think i can remember them to the end it is getting very hard for me to listen to reading but the different voices and all made this very plain the music glasses and choruses give so much joy to the people and here it seems possible to bring together in a common feeling those widely separated by tradition and custom music is the universal language of the heart bohemian and polish women sing their tender stirring folk songs the voices of men and women of many lands mingle in schubert's lovely melodies and in the mighty choruses of handel as miss adams went about among her neighbors she longed to lead them to a perception of the relation between the present and the past if only the young who were impatiently breaking away from all the old country tradition could be made to appreciate what their parents held dear if the fathers and mothers could at the same time understand the complex new order in which their children were struggling to hold their own when one day she saw an old italian woman spinning with distaff and spindle an idea came to her a labor museum that would show the growth of industries in every country from the simplest processes to the elaborate machinery of modern times might serve the purpose the working out of her plan far exceeded her wildest dream russians germans and italians happily foregathered to demonstrate and compare methods of textile work with which they were familiar other activities proved equally interesting the lectures given among the various exhibits met with a warm welcome factory workers who had previously fought shy of everything improving came because they said these lectures were getting next to the stuff you work with all the time hull house has worked not only with the people but for them by trying to secure laws that will improve the conditions under which they labor and live the following incident will speak for the fight that miss adams has made against such evils as child labor and sweatshop work the representatives of a group of manufacturers waited upon her and promised that if she would drop all this nonsense about a sweatshop bill of which she knew nothing certain businessmen would give fifty thousand dollars for her settlement the steady look which the lady of hull house gave the spokesman made him wish that someone else had come with the offer of the bribe we have no ambition said miss adams to make hull house the largest institution in chicago but we are trying to protect our neighbors from evil conditions and if to do that the destruction of our settlement should be necessary we would gladly sing a te deum on its ruins the girl who saw with what she looked on with the eye of her heart had become a leader in the life and the reforms of her time on the whole one writer has said of her the reach of this woman's sympathy and understanding is beyond all comparison wider in its span comprehending all kinds of people than that of any other living person jane adams has won her great influence with people by the simple means of working with them her life and the true whole house the work itself not the building which shelter it give meaning to the saying that labor is the house that love lives in the end End of chapter 11. 
end of Heroines of Service by Mary Rosetta Parkman.